We now bring you to a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Glenn Thomas, senior pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. It's great to have you with us today. Whether you are here in person or listening in the greater St. Louis area, KFUO 850 AM or online at KFUO.org. Welcome, and we're glad you're with us as we study God's Word this morning. Special greeting to all of our moms out there. We hope that you have a great day today on this Mother's Day as well. Let's begin, if we could, with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to rejoice in the words that the angel spoke to the women at the tomb. He is not here, he is risen. And we thank you that his victory over sin, death, and the grave is our victory by grace through faith in him. We thank you also for this opportunity to study your word together. We pray your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing upon us as we do so. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. All right, we are continuing our uh, trip to Jerusalem, I guess you would say, with Jesus in Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. And we're going to begin with verse 19. Uh, taking a look, first of all, at the parable. And notice I said the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, this is a parable. We don't believe that this Jesus is recounting an event that, that actually occurred. And secondly, whenever we deal with a parable, we have to be careful that we don't press the details too much and try to read something in. For example, uh, the rich man is going to have five brothers back home. Well, should we make something out of the fact that he has five brothers back home? Uh, should we make something out of the fact that he can see from Hades, he can see the, the Lazarus at, at Abraham's bosom? Should we make things out of that? Generally speaking, we try not to press the details of a parable too far and try to make new doctrines, new teachings uh, that are supported elsewhere in Scripture. If they are supported elsewhere in Scripture, that's, a, that's something different. Um, for example, uh, you did, I wasn't here, but you did the parable uh, in Luke 15 of the uh, lost coin, and the woman sweeps her house vigorously to try and find the lost coin. Well, those three parables of lost and found would typify or symbolize Jesus coming uh, to look for that which is lost and rejoicing that he's found it. Well, if you press the detail too far there, you've got Jesus as a woman looking for the coin. So just an, another example of the fact that we don't press every detail in a parable. Uh, Jesus is telling a parable using earthly details in order to try and teach something, usually one main teaching. Okay. So having said that, let's read through the entire parable and then we'll go back and kind of take it apart verse by verse. So starting at verse 19 of Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, 
Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. All right, so let's go back and kind of take this apart verse by verse and make some comments along the way and then look at the major teaching that Jesus is attempting to do here. Uh, first of all, there is this rich man. And I read one uh, commentary, something that I had never heard before, and quite frankly, I'm not sure I believe it. Um, the commentator was saying that the rich man represents the Pharisees and uh, Lazarus represents all the other Jews and those who were repenting and so on. Um, it is true that a few verses back, in fact, it's back in, in 16 verse 14, uh, the Pharisees are chided for loving, being lovers of money. But I'm not sure that we can make that jump just because of that and say that these are Pharisees necessarily being referred to here by Jesus and typified by the rich man. It, it's possible, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, as I say, I wouldn't bet the farm on that necessarily. There is, again, there's a general point to be made here that goes far beyond just the Pharisees and deals with all people. So we'll get to that. Notice this rich man was clothed in purple. The purple would have been his outer garment. And purple in Bible times was a sign of great wealth. You had to uh, buy purple dye in order to uh, uh, color your, your outer garment purple. And if you wore a purple garment, uh, it was, I don't know what the equivalent would be today, but uh, you were thought to uh, be wealthy, even if you weren't. If you had a purple garment on, you were acting like you were wealthy. You can make your own connections today uh, to what fashion statement makes the same uh, conclusion. And then notice, and, and fine linen, so his inner garment would have been a fine linen, which both would have been expensive back at that time. And notice he feasted sumptuously every day. Every day. You remember the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son? When the son comes home, the younger son, the prodigal son, comes back home, and the, what does the father order? That the, the calf be uh, killed and, and a great feast takes place, right? A great celebration takes place. This guy lived like this every day. Extravagant feast every day. So he not only was wealthy, but lived, uh, you know, just an extreme uh, luxury and feasting. Notice all focused upon himself. There's no indication that there's any thought for anyone else until the end of the parable. Okay? So he does this every day. Contrast now at his gate, the gate of his great, I'm sure, uh, dwelling, residence, uh, there laid a poor man, and his name is Lazarus. Now, do not confuse this with Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This is just a guy named Lazarus. He's not the same guy, okay? And Lazarus, uh, from the Hebrew, El-Hazan, means God furnishes help, or God helps. 
Okay, so that's his name. He is there at the gate, and notice he was laid there, which tells us that in addition to the sores that he had, he probably was not mobile, could not, could not bring himself to that gate, but others actually laid him there every day. And so his, his life literally was laying at this gate and begging, begging for alms, begging for food. That was what his life consisted of in great contrast to this other guy who lived in such extravagant wealth and, again, focused on himself. So going further, this guy was covered with sores. We don't think this was leprosy because if it was, he wouldn't be at this guy's gate. He would be off in a colony. They would always be isolated outside of the main circulation of people. So we don't think it was leprosy. Uh, the word literally means like ulcers, sores, on, on skin, so we don't know exactly what this was, but it's a, a deplorable kind of, of condition that he had. And notice he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Desired to be fed. Notice there's no indication that this rich guy actually did feed him. He just desired to be fed. And notice there, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, he apparently couldn't even keep the dogs away from licking his sores. And Jews would have found this to be uh, reprehensible, that dogs, they, something about dogs, they, they, do not, they are not enamored with dogs, let me put it that way. And that this guy could not even keep dogs from coming and licking his sores would be something that, again, as Jesus is telling this, the, the, any, any Jew at that time would just be in utter sympathy with this poor guy who is there at that gate, okay? Now, uh, verse 22, the poor man died. So here's the contrast. Now, the poor man died, and notice how Luke, uh, Jesus gives a lot of detail here. The angels carry him to Abraham's side. So he is being carried uh, again, um, and it would be, again, his soul, we would say, being carried to the heavenly banquet where he resides and reclines figuratively here with Abraham at a, at a banquet, at a heavenly banquet. Okay, and he, so he is in heaven. The rich man now dies and was buried and in Hades. So his, his destination is just the opposite. It seems here that Hades, uh, which is a, a Greek word, is used uh, here to represent hell, to refer to hell, same as Gehenna in the New Testament. And uh, Gehenna, we just did this last Sunday in the, in the Bible class in the, uh, over in the church, uh, was actually a valley, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnon, uh, originally. And it was south and west of Jerusalem, and it was the place where the garbage burned, and it never stopped. You can imagine the stench when the wind is blowing the, the right direction. So that was Gehenna. And, uh, and it became used to symbolize hell itself, to refer to hell itself, or the name for hell itself. And uh, just by the way, that's in that valley of Hinnon is where God's people in the Old Testament, I think, sank to their lowest point, in that it was there that they actually sacrificed their children to false gods. They replicated the practices of the Canaanites and actually were sacrificing their children until Josiah became king and did away with that place. <clears throat> so Hades here seems to be used the, as the equivalent to Gehenna. 
Okay? So that's where he is, and notice he's in burning torment there. Okay? And he says, he lifts up his eyes and sees Abraham far off and Lazarus. So again, whether people in hell can actually see the people in heaven, let's not make a doctrine out of this. It's simply, again, for the story. Uh, and and he, he sees uh, Lazarus at his side, and at verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham. Now, we don't want to just slide over those words. Father Abraham. What does that tell you about the rich guy? What is he? Jewish. The Jew. Yeah, Father Abraham. He refers to Abraham as father. Okay. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now, again, bodily, we don't think he is in Hades. His soul would be. Uh, again, going with what we know from Scripture. Notice here, the guy does not, number one, he does not repent, does he? There's no repentance here whatsoever. He does not ask to be forgiven. He knows he's, his state is, is confirmed, is final. There's no way that he's, his um, eternal destiny is going to be changed here. He simply wants some relief from the torment. And um, as I said last week in the other class, you know, we live in a world where, yes, Satan is called the prince of this world, but he still is on a leash. God still has him under his control. Just think of what hell will be like where we no longer have that condition. We no longer have the presence of God and his compassion and his mercy and his grace. And this guy is experiencing that. It is unending torment. Okay? And so all he wants is just a little relief, a little momentary relief by dipping the finger and, and uh, he's in anguish in the flame. But Abraham answers him, child, so a very, a very endearing term here, isn't it? Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. So let me ask you this. Is Jesus meaning to teach here that rich people who have a great life here on earth are automatically going to be in hell, and poor people who have a terrible life here are automatically going to be in heaven. Is that, is that the point of the teaching? No. Jesus is not here attempting to teach a quid pro quo that if you, if you are rich and have a great life here, you're automatically going to hell, or the opposite. If you, just because you are needy and have a poor life here, you're automatically going to heaven. The outward circumstances do not have anything to do with where we end up eternally. Now, having said that, what was, remember, what was the conclusion that people back in Bible times with their uh, homespun theology, what was the popular view? That if you were rich and wealthy, how was your relationship with God, did they think? Yes. You, were, you were in tight with God because just look at all the blessings that you have. Or the opposite, unfortunately, they believed as well and concluded falsely, that if you were poor, or especially if there was something wrong with you physically, if you had uh, like the skin disease or leprosy or lame or blind or couldn't, what was their conclusion? With your relationship with God must be what? Something's wrong, right? And remember, when Jesus and the disciples come upon the man who was born blind, the disciples kind of bought into that theology, didn't they? What did they say? Lord, who sinned that this man should be born blind, him or his parents? And Jesus dispels it and says, neither. 
but that the glory of God might be manifest in him. And he goes on, of course, to heal him. Okay? So, uh, but that was the, the homespun theology of that time. So Jesus is not trying to teach anything with regard to eternal destiny based on earthly circumstances here. Okay? Um, so, going on, uh, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now, I don't know who would want to go from heaven to hell, but this pointing out that Lazarus can't physically do it here, uh, certainly everyone would want to go the other direction, wouldn't they? Wouldn't want to go from hell uh, or Hades to heaven. Uh, by the way, just another uh, side point, I guess, here, is that, remember, uh, we confess in the creed that Jesus did what? After he was crucified, died, and buried, he descended into hell. The first step in the state of exaltation is that he descended into hell. Did he go there to offer everybody a second chance? No. And here's a, here's a passage again that would kind of confirm that. There's no going from there to heaven, right? Uh, did he go there to finish suffering? No. He said on the cross, it is finished, right? He, it was done. He had, he had accomplished what he came to do. Okay? So there is no second chance, and there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that there is some second chance that you get, or anybody gets, I should say, uh, that ends up in hell. That is simply not uh, a scripture, uh, scriptural teaching at all. And this, again, backs that up. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. Here's the first time that we see the guy actually thinking apart from himself, thinking about somebody else in this whole parable. What's he want him to do? He's got five brothers at home. And what's the implication? Maybe they're living the same way he did, focused on themselves, apart from God. And so send him back so that he may warn them, his five brothers, lest they also come into this place of torment. Okay? Here's the response. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So Abraham says they've got what? They've got all that they need. They've got Moses and the prophets. Now, what does he mean? Moses and the prophets is a way of speaking about what? The scriptures. Yeah, the Old Testament scriptures. They've got Moses and the prophets. Remember on Easter afternoon, the two men on the way to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes up and he's walking with them and they're talking, and all the way through the conversation, and then they finally get to the place where they're going to stay. They uh, invite Jesus in, and it's in the breaking of the bread, the blessing of the bread, that he, they recognize him. And remember what those two guys end up saying. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, Luke tells us that he began to explain how the scriptures were, uh, Moses and the prophets, how they spoke about whom? About him. And this is exactly what Abraham is saying to them here that they have Moses and the scriptures. They have the word of God. And that's how God works, through his means. Uh, this guy wants a big display, a big show. Somebody comes back from the dead, and then certainly they'll believe. But what's the, what's the irony here in what, in what this guy asks for? Who is going to come back from the dead? Jesus. And is everybody going to believe? No. No. That's the irony, isn't it? That Jesus, the one telling the story, is going to come back from the dead, 
and still many, many people are not going to believe. Okay? But, uh, so verse uh, 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And so the, the irony here, too, is that this guy also had Moses in the scriptures, didn't he? He had Moses in the prophets, and he didn't listen to them. And Jesus, find, uh, Jesus tells at the end, Abraham says, If they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So let's stop here and kind of, uh, what is the point that Jesus is trying to make here? First of all, we said that outward circumstances in life do not determine where one ends up eternally. We know that certainly is true. What does determine where someone ends up? It's in the heart, isn't it? Heart and mind. Whether one receives God's offer of forgiveness by grace through faith in Jesus or not. Okay? So I liked this. Uh, uh, this is a quote from William Arndt, who was a professor at uh, Concordia Seminary here in town for many years. Uh, was the, the, at that time uh, our, our resident expert on the Gospel of Luke. And he wrote this. A rich person who is ungodly and uses his wealth wrongly will, in spite of his physical resources, ultimately become most wretched. While a poor person, if he is a child of God, will, after a life of misery, enter the region of everlasting joy. And that really summarizes it, doesn't it? And so Jesus is talking here about the heart and about how the heart impacts our use of physical or worldly things to an audience that really needed to hear it. It did include, as we said, Pharisees whom he chided for being lovers of money. But again, this applies way beyond the Pharisees at that time, and Sadducees also, for that matter, who were uh, quite wealthy. Okay? All right, let's stop here. Any questions, any comments on this parable? Uh, any of the details of it? What? Okay, yeah. Yes. Yeah, good point. So the point uh, for those uh, listening is that uh, the idea of they will not um, uh, they will not be convinced or they will not hear here uh, even if somebody comes back from the dead. And the idea here, there's a difference, isn't there, between just listening and knowing that there are words out there and actually taking in and believing, right? Actually receiving what is being said, right? We all have seen. Uh, how that can happen. Uh, it happens in worship services, unfortunately, sometimes, where people are there, they hear words, but are they receiving, actually receiving? Or maybe you've had experience of talking with someone about Christ, and they're hearing words, but there's a difference between that and actually internalizing, believing, and receiving those words. That's, a, that's an excellent point. Okay? Any other comments, questions? Yes, David. Yeah. So the question was, is this the only place that Jesus talks about the chasm and hell itself? I don't know, I can't think of another place right now off the top of my head where he talks about that chasm, but he does talk about hell in other places. Uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think it's 14 times, or no, the, the term Gehenna is used 14 times. Jesus uses it 12 of the 14 that it's in the scriptures. 
So he does in other places talk about, you know, that's kind of a good point that I think there's some people that think, oh, you know, Jesus never, never talked about things like that. Jesus was always talking about love and forgiveness and mercy. No, there's plenty of places where he also talked about hell and punishment and so on. Much more did he talk about heaven, but it's not that he did not speak about hell. He certainly did try to warn them. Okay? Good question. Any other questions, comments? Oh, yes, David. Ah. Okay, yeah. The agony he was going through on the cross, being actually the father withdrawing or forsaking him on the cross, would be, the, we would say, in effect, experiencing hell on the cross there in our place. Yeah, good point. Point. All right, very good. Oh, yes, Rob. Yeah, so the question was, is there any comment on the name Lazarus or the use of the name Lazarus? Um, I didn't see any other than just, it, it, as I said, it does, it's kind of fitting in a way because, again, his name means God helps or God um, uh, assists someone. And so uh, whether Jesus intended anything by using that, uh, in Bible times, though, you know, we've got to say many times the names were significant. You know, they, uh, they actually gave meaning to what that person, especially what that person was going to do or God was going to do through that person. Like Yeshua for Joshua, you know, that the Lord saves, and then Jesus takes on that name. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, that's an excellent point. In fact, it goes to the sermon today that uh, Pastor Wade uh, preaches. But uh, the point, too, we, want, we do not want to conclude the opposite, that if you're a godly Christian, that your life is going to be one smooth uh, road, right? In fact, you look around, and sometimes you see just the opposite happen, don't you? You see... People that are godly, they are Christians, and they seem to have twice as many uh, issues and, and problems and, and tough times as people who don't. And sometimes that can be a little disillusioning because a new Christian sometimes comes to the faith with, with that assumption. Well, now that I'm a Christian, life is going to be fantastic until the first tragedy comes, and then they can be, unfortunately can be disillusioned. So we want to we want to make sure people don't, who are coming into the Christian faith don't come in with that understanding, uh, that now I'm going to have a life of ease and, and no problems whatsoever. Well, no. Fact, though, you're going to have God with you walking through life and all of its issues and all of its problems, not be delivered from them. I guess everybody would want to be a Christian if that were the case, right? For the wrong reasons, for self-centered reasons, right? <laughs> life of ease. Yeah, good, good point. Any other comments or questions? All right, let's go on then. Uh, starting now in uh, chapter 17, and we're going to have a series of four seemingly unrelated teachings by Jesus. And the first of these uh, sort of loosely associated teachings starts at, at, in his verses 1 and 2 of 17. So let's read 1 and 2, and then we'll go back. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So going back now, and this again is a teaching, notice to his disciples, and we don't know if this is the disciples just the 12 or disciples in a broader sense. 
to include uh, you know, the, the group of followers with him or not. We're going to have a verse coming up where he says to the apostles. Now there we know <laughs> it's the 12 and not anybody else. But notice there, temptations to sin. Now these, the actual word here is stumbling block. It's scandalon in Greek from where we get the English word scandal. So something that causes us to be scandalized. And so uh, two possibilities here. One is just a temptation to actually commit a sin. Or even, maybe even worse, someone to actually fall away. So that word can really go a couple different ways. Notice there, does Jesus paint a rosy picture here that you're never going to be tempted or scandalized? Just the opposite. Notice what he says. Uh, temptations to sin are what? Sure to come. You can count on it. They are for sure going to happen. So do not think that somehow we're going to avoid it or evade it. Okay? But whenever Jesus says, woe, that's not good. <laughs> woe, to, woe to the one through whom they come. And he makes a comparison here that it would be better for that person if a millstone were tied around his neck and he were to be thrown into the sea. Now, if you go to the city of Capernaum today, uh, one, uh, you'll see a number of things there, but one of the things you will see is they have some millstones there. And the millstones in Bible times were used for grinding up grain, and they were sort of, they were quite large, at least these ones in Capernaum were, and they're like an inverted cone. And the bottom of the cone, the sharp, sharper point, would go down into like a big stone bowl. And the grain would be put in there, and many times a beast of burden then would walk in a circle, and this stone would be turning and grinding up the grain. Okay, so we would think of that as kind of primitive, but that's the way they did it. And I'll tell you what, those stones are big. And whenever I, when I saw those, this verse came to my mind immediately. There is no way that you could uh, come up off the bottom of any body of water with, with one of those tied around your neck. You were a goner. There's no question. Okay? So Jesus uses this as an illustration that it's going to be so bad for that person that it would be better for them if they suffered that fate, if that was their condition. Okay? Then to cause one of these little ones. Now, question here. Is Jesus talking about children here, or is he in a general way speaking of little ones as his followers, and especially those who had repented and are now following him? Uh, in Matthew 18, where Jesus makes a similar statement, we know there he is talking about children, because the word there is used for children uh, in, in connection with it. Here, it literally could be either way. Could there have been some children standing around and Jesus gestures to them, then cause one of these little ones of mine to fall away? We don't know for sure. But at any rate, it's anyone who causes someone else to sin, or perhaps more seriously, to fall away. Okay. Now, a couple things. Uh, some sins... We would say, well, first of all, a sin is a sin is a sin, right? I mean, we know that from the scriptures. But some sins have what we might call a bigger impact in the lives 
of people. Publicly, a bigger impact in the lives of people. And when someone, uh, how can I ask this? Who, who in the church who commits a great public sin causes the biggest offense? Which person? Yeah, pastor. Uh, can cause the biggest offense in a church. And, that, and, and, and cause even, unfortunately, may cause the seriousness of that sin may cause some people to exit, right? Unfortunately. And that's why Paul, twice, at least twice that I can think of, 1 Timothy 3, for example, says that a, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, does that mean that a pastor, we've got to have a pastor that never sinned in his entire life, never had a bad thought, word, or deed in his life? <laughs> no, obviously that's not it. How many pastors would we have? We had no, none, right? I mean, it would be an unfillable office. But actually that word means, uh, we had uh, Dr. Gibbs come one time and explain to when I was in a, another place, uh, serving in a different way, what does this mean when I was at the seminary? What does this actually mean? And the word literally means he must not have a handle on him, something that somebody can latch on to. And so, uh, and, and um, hold him by it, okay? So there must not be something that is so scandalous that it becomes a stumbling block for those in the church. And it's the careful responsibility of those at the seminary, of our district presidents, to try to interpret that for today out in the church. What is a scandal a stumbling block today if a pastor commits it or not and ultimately that determines does he become a pastor or if he is a pastor does he remain in office as a pastor or not and sometimes people don't agree on that at any rate another thing I thought of in the connection with this is how important your friends are and those you hang around with are and I think it's especially true when children go off to college and they are kind of on their own. Mom and dad aren't there on Sunday morning, right? And how easy it is to have friends who don't value the same things that you do in terms of Christ and God and the body of Christ and so on. And how easy it is that they help you fall away or fall into some very bad habits uh, in your life. So I, every time I can in a sermon, I say that. I mean, it is so important that, uh, not that we shouldn't associate with those who are uh, unbelievers, of course. We, we want to have it work in the opposite direction, right? That, that we influence them. But it's so very important, those, those friends that especially our young people make, um, and especially as they're going off, I think, to college. High school is still very important, but mom and dad are still around, uh, hopefully. And uh, what's that? The armed services. Oh, the armed services. Okay, thanks, Steve. Yeah, that's, there's another great example, that uh, surrounding yourself, and it, and it works just the opposite, doesn't it? That if you surround yourself with good Christian friends, they help encourage you in your relationship with God. I mean, it's a help instead of a hindrance. 
So again, very important thing that we think about, I think, and not that that doesn't apply to all of us, right, to, to, to all of us, but it's especially, I think, in those critical um, points in life that it's so important to have good, solid Christian friends with us and around us, okay? All right, so um, again, how seriously God takes those who bring either temptation to sin or temptation to fall away, apostasy, he takes that extremely seriously. And the fate of someone who does that is going to be extreme, okay? Now, uh, next verse three, we don't know if verse three actually should be the end of verse two, or maybe it is starting another section here. Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus says. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now let's go back. So pay attention to yourselves. If that goes with the previous verse, it could be Jesus saying, watch yourselves, that you don't cause someone to fall away, right? If it's connected with the previous verse, if he intends to have that be a continuous thought there. But now he talks about forgiveness. Now notice, if your brother sins, what does Jesus say? Keep your mouth shut, don't say anything. Tell him he's wrong. Yeah, rebuke him. Now, is this easily done? Oh, it isn't, right? We, we would prefer just to remain quiet. Don't say anything. Don't rock the boat. Uh, you know, just kind of, let, let's just get past this. Uh, but no. And, you know, uh, again, it kind of connects with what I was just saying, that hopefully we have a relationship with someone who can do that for us, right? That if we are sinning, can call it to our attention. And how do, we, how do we do that? Do we do it in a self-righteous, I'm better than your, you, I'm superior to you kind of a way? Obviously not, right? We speak the truth in love to someone, right? And, and hopefully gently and tactfully, but hopefully we have somebody in our life. You know, maybe your spouse, it may be your sibling, but someone who can do that for us, that if we sin can point it out to us, again, in a loving way, so that we might repent and turn away. Uh, notice there, if he repents, what are you supposed to do? Forgive him. So the implication here, he sins against you, right? And he repents, forgive him. And, or, I guess you could say too, you pronounce forgiveness even if he's just done a sin in general, right? You can pronounce forgiveness to another, to another uh, person, or your sins are forgiven uh, through Christ. And notice here, Jesus says, we sin seven times. Now, is Jesus meaning to set a limit here? Is Jesus meaning to say, you know, you gotta do it seven times, but boy, if he sins an eighth time, you don't have to forgive him. Is that, what, is that the spirit of what Jesus is saying here? You, you keep an abacus there, and oh, we're up to seven. No, obviously not. He's not intending to say, but if he does it eight times, you don't have to forgive him anymore. What is the implication here? Every time he sins, what are you supposed to do? Forgive. Now let's talk for a moment, what does it mean to forgive someone? Does it mean that I can no longer remember what that person did against me? Is that, is that what it means? And if I can still remember it, that means I must not have forgiven that person. No, not that. 
So what does it mean actually to forgive someone in your heart? I can still remember it, but I'd say it's more important how I remember it, right? Do I remember it with feelings of anger and feelings of vengeance and wanting to get back at that person, maybe more than get back at them? If that's the way I remember it, I probably haven't forgiven that person, right? But if I simply remember that it happened and I, uh, I've, I've let those feelings go of anger and vengeance, then I'm pretty sure I have forgiven that person, right? And it may take, it may take time, right? It may take time to get to that point, uh, especially if it's something that is, has been intentionally done against you to harm or hurt you. That may take some time for that to happen. But we pray that God will bring us to that point, okay? Where, where we let that anger and that vengeance pass us by and don't harbor it in our heart and in our mind, okay? So every time, not just when we feel like it, not just when we uh, think, okay, I guess I can, you know, I, but every time. And that's hard. That's really hard. All right. That's, the, that's actually the second saying there. Uh, those two verses are actually the second of these four sayings. Any comments, questions here on forgiveness? Any? Oh, yeah. Yes. So Randy's point was uh, he heard this uh, connected to the, the parable of the prodigal son. And boy, what a great, I love that parable. I, I wish I was teaching Luke 15 here. <laughs> I didn't, didn't happen to work out because I love Luke 15. Remember the father sees the son afar off and doesn't even let the son come to him. He runs out and receives that son back home. And, and, uh, and then the other son, of course, the older son is jealous. And, and you know, well, we could talk all day on this parable. But uh, yeah, remember, there's also something that came to mind. Remember, what question did Peter ask Jesus in Matthew 18? Lord, how many times should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Remember the, the number Peter offers? Seven times? And we normally think of that. The rabbis, some of the rabbis back at that time were teaching, you only had to forgive someone. Does anyone know how many? Three times. Three times. Fourth time, you weren't obligated any longer. So Peter doubles that and throws in another one for good measure. And what is he probably expecting Jesus to say back? Peter, you are so generous. You are such a loving, compassionate person. But of course, Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, but it literally 77s, and meaning again, every time, an unlimited, there is no limit. See, we like to calculate, don't we? We like to calculate in our forgiveness of people. We like to make estimations and calculations with God. Does God calculate in forgiving us? It's a good thing he doesn't, right? Good thing there's no upper limit. It's every time. What were you going to say something? Yeah, so Bud's point was that, uh, going back to the previous verses, that, that we're scandal, scandal on, does not necessarily have to be just one act of sin. It can be a continuous bad example that a Christian is setting for someone else, and especially serious when it's parents, right, for their, for their children. That is especially a serious thing, and causing them to stumble uh, or be scandalized. Yes, Jim? Against you? Yeah. Yes. Uh, sometimes in life, right, we've, we've encountered this where 
someone is not sorry for what they have done. And, or it can, it can work one of two ways. Um, and now, are, are they forgiven for that sin before God if they are, again, a follower of Jesus Christ? We know there is forgiveness for all sin. Um, and it may be time to talk with that person seriously that, you know, Christ has died for that sin, but I want you to know what that did to me, how that hurt me. Maybe there are some times where people don't even realize it, right? They don't even realize the, the impact of their action had on you. And maybe they didn't even intend it. I thought you were going to go the other way. There's, there's the other way, too, where we apologize, 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 and what? They refuse to forgive, right? And so, again, we know that there, we, we can't force someone to forgive us. But, again, we know that through the blood of Christ, those sins are forgiven. They have all been paid for. There's not a, not a single sin for which Christ has not covered with his blood. Okay? Any other good question? Any other Questions, comments? Yes. Uh huh. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So Nicole's point was that there are actually secular studies done that show that when you forgive, you actually live a healthier life. Your blood pressure goes down. I think we could probably say. We can relate to that, right? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. That, that forgiveness is something that we pray for, and it's something that we can change, God can change in us towards someone else in our life, and we pray for, for him for that. Some people, it seems, in life find it easier to forgive than others do. Uh, I think we can uh, conclude that uh, as well from our own personal experience. But, yeah, there are a lot of studies that show forgiving and actually Believers in Christ live longer. Uh, our staff is reading a book um, uh, called The Relentless uh, of Hurry, The Relentless Elimination of Hurry, and shows that people who take a Sabbath day live longer than people who don't, and so on. So there are all kinds of studies that confirm all those things. All right, now, let's go on uh, quickly to uh, get through these. Then, now notice verse 5. Now we know he's talking to the disciples. The apostles the 12, said to the Lord, increase our faith. Why does it follow right on what Jesus just said that the, the apostles ask for him to increase their faith? Any connection there? What might they be realizing about themselves? Yeah, they're probably thinking to themselves, boy, I don't know if I can do this. Every time I can forgive... And so there, a lot of commentators will make a connection there between this request of the apostles and what Jesus has just said. In other words, wow, you know, they didn't say this, but wow, I please help me increase my faith so that I may do this. Now, look at the statement Jesus makes about faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, so there was likely a tree you know, right next to where he was, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, many times people take this to be a negative statement, that Jesus is criticizing the disciples for not having faith. But actually, he's making a positive statement about faith to them. And when you stop and think about it, 
Faith is only as good as its object, right? If I have um, bald tires on my car, and you can see the, the cords on the inside of the tire, but I say, I have faith that that car is going to get me home. It doesn't matter how much faith I have, because the object of my faith is terrible. It's tires that are on their last you know, uh, life. And we fortunately have Jesus as the object of our faith. And it's the object of the faith, not necessarily how much of it or how great it is that really matters. Prime example, thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How much did he know or understand? How deep and broad was his faith? Didn't seem to be much. And Jesus, again, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise. So the power of faith itself, the assurance, and notice there, they will, God will bless them, Jesus and the Father will bless them with increasing faith, even to the point where all of them except John, we believe, will actually end up dying rather than forsake that faith, right? So they are going to get the faith that they are asking or requesting here, okay? All right. Now let's go to the last, very last, we'll finish up here. Uh, the very last one, uh, the statement that Jesus makes here, the last teaching. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. This is kind of an interesting statement. Jesus says, so let's just think about this now. There's one servant out in the field. He comes in, and the master, is the master going to say to him, why don't you sit at the table and I'll serve you? No, Jesus says. The master would say to him when he comes in, get dressed and get my dinner. That's what his job is, right? So when you finally have done what you've done, just say, I've done what was my duty to do. Now, who are the servants in this sort of comparison here? Disciples, followers of Jesus. They, uh, when they are doing what they've been asked to do, they don't need to be rewarded. They don't need to be praised. They're simply doing what they do, right? So the idea that Jesus is trying to teach here is humility. Be humble. Just simply do what you are to do. And remember, how many times didn't the disciples argue about what? Which one of them was the greatest, right? And they did it in the upper room. They did it on the road. Uh, then you had the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. The mom comes and says, uh, you know, when you come into your kingdom, my boys, you know, one at your right and one at your left. And again, it is the way of the world to be calculating who's above whom. And who's, uh, you know, we want to have a pecking order and see who's, who's more important than somebody else. And Jesus has to always be countering that, right? That it's not that way in the kingdom. Just humbly serve. And that's why I think um, uh, just one application, again, I'll go back to pastors, have to be careful that we don't get a big head. 
Because, again, you have people coming up to you and saying, oh, that was a nice sermon, and, you know, and this and that and the other thing. And before you know it, you can start to be thinking uh, a little higher of yourself than the facts would, uh, would indicate, right? <laughs> or would dictate. And we have, all of us have to be careful in that regard, but I think especially pastors, if we're not careful, can be caught in that trap. And uh, remember what Paul said? What did God do for Paul to keep Paul from being too puffed up and conceited? Thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was, but it was, we think, some sort of a physical impediment. And Paul says the reason to keep him from being too puffed up or too conceited. He was given this. And uh, not that uh, pastors are looking for thorns in the flesh, but we all have to be careful, don't we, that we don't begin to think too much of ourselves. And rather, we're just doing what we've been sent to do, what we have been given to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Okay? So, anyway, maybe that's a, maybe that's a good uh, point to, uh, to end on. And uh, so next time we'll get Jesus and the cleansing of the ten lepers, which is the gospel lesson, every Thanksgiving. Every Thanksgiving we hear this to the point where you hate to preach on it, because what else can you say about it if you've already preached on it two or three times? But we'll look at that next week. Probably some things maybe to bring out that we don't usually bring out in a sermon uh, that we can look at next week. Let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.